Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. This is an Irish independent podcast. Margaret Thatcher checks into the Napoleon Suite, which is on the first floor facing the sea um, on the promenade. Patrick McGee had checked in three weeks earlier, posing as a guest, as an Englishman, using the name Roy Walsh. He planted the bomb behind a, a panel in a bath with a timer. And it was timed to pulse down second by second to 2.54 a.m. on the 12th of October. The bomb itself obliterated the room 629 and the rooms immediately adjacent to it. There it toppled a Victorian chimney stack that weighed five tons. And it started wiping out one room after another, falling down sort of like a a homicidal guillotine, just slicing through everything. At the outset, it looked like it could have cascaded directly into Margaret Thatcher's suite. But it didn't. It took a slight swerve. And so this is really why Thatcher survived. It's the sheer fluke of geometry. Today on the Indo-Daily. The day the IRA almost killed Margaret Thatcher. In 1984, a massive explosion rocked the Grand Hotel in Brighton, where the Tory party conference was being held. Good evening. Margaret Thatcher says she was very lucky, and she was. The British Prime Minister barely escaped death as six floors of a Brighton hotel crashed down on her suite. The bombing went down in history as one of the most audacious attacks on the British government since the gunpowder plot. I'm Fiona Sheen, and today I'm joined by Rory Carroll, The Guardian's Ireland correspondent and author of the new book, Killing Thatcher, to tell us how the IRA managed to get so close to assassinating the Iron Lady. Rory, take us back to the early 80s and the troubles, a, a, a particularly 
tense period, you'd have to say. Yes, I mean, this was the period that was really overshadowed or dominated by the, the hunger strikes and the aftermath of the hunger strikes when, you know, we had, starting with Bobby Sands, you know, 10 Republican prisoners starving themselves to death in 1981, which was, you know, a psychological shock um, to the Republican movement and, and I think the rest of Ireland in a way too as well. West Belfast, May 1981. 70,000 people attend the funeral of the MP for Fermanagh and South Tyrone, Bobby Sands. He's the first of 10 IRA hunger strikers who are to die in the itch blocks of the Mays prison. The provisionals blame Mrs. Thatcher and her government for his death. And, of course, it's elevated Thatcher to the demonology in, you know, in, in Irish folklore, really. And she was right up there with Oliver Cromwell for many people. And, uh, you know, so it, that's what, you know, the level of anger uh, in the Republican movement was so visceral and intense. And, you know, people were, you know, were clamoring for, for payback. And this was really, in a way, was the genesis of the plot against Thatcher, that they, they felt that they really owed it to their own supporters to try to go after Thatcher. Yeah, she becomes Prime Minister late 70s and, and it's even in the early phases of her premiership that the hunger strikes come about and at the heart of it is that this recognition of original IRA prisoners as political prisoners and she adopts a, a very hard line in, in advance and all the way through the hunger strikes. Well, yes and no. I mean, she did. I mean, she was very much the Iron Lady and she felt that they were terrorists, criminals, murderers, and that they did not deserve uh, political status and that it was, that had been a mistake in the 70s to give them political status and that they should be treated as criminals. Yet, behind this kind of uh, implacable facade, there was behind the scenes more flexibility shown by her government, especially after the fourth hunger striker died, there was basically a deal of sorts was offered um, and this was rejected. Now, this is sort of a revisionist version of the hunger strikes history, um, which my book doesn't go that much deep into this because it's, you know, because it, my jumping off point is the fact that, you know, the hunger strikes caused such anger and fury and, and a clamor for vengeance. But it, it is interesting to, to revisit the hunger strikes and to see that, you know, Thatcher did show some surprising flexibility behind the scenes, which neither she, for her own reasons, nor the Republican movement were keen to advertise the fact then or uh, at the time or, or even since then. We're coming then into into the early 80s period and she goes through the Falklands War, which resulted in a massive boost in her popularity. Take us then to October 84, and can you set the scene for us about the, the Conservative Party conference taking place in Brighton? Yes, in many ways, Margaret Thatcher was at her, her, her apogee at this time. I mean, she's won two elections. Uh, she is the, the, the kind of a Cold War heroine uh, of the American right. Uh, she's Ronald Reagan's uh, main ally um, in the world. Thatcherism as a kind of domestic revolution in the UK is bedding down. The economy is finally beginning to improve. Um, it's on the up. She's now in complete control of her, her party. And, you know, she and she's also the conqueror of, of the Falklands. 
um, who was uh, toppled um, the Argentinian regime. It's Thursday night. The Conservative Party conference is drawing to its close. Mrs Thatcher and the party faithful are in good spirits. Despite warnings about a possible terrorist attack in Britain, the atmosphere at the Grand Hotel is how the Tories want it, totally relaxed. So, I mean, she, it was all looking rather good for her uh, coming into the, the Tory party conference. And the one big black spot on the, on the horizon for her was the minor strike. Um, there was this grueling um, in a battle of, of wills between striking miners and the government, which was quite traumatic in many ways for um, parts of England and Wales. So, but she was triumphant. I mean, she was coming into the Tory Party conference to be garlanded by her supporters. There'd be going to be chants of Maggie, Maggie. Um, and she would be received with, you know, as ever with, with raptures. Um, so that's that was the the climate in which she swept into to Brighton in October 1984. The conference is taking place in Brighton. She's staying in the Grand Hotel, as are many other delegates there on, on the seafront in Brighton. Tell us what happens. So, yeah, so she checks into the Napoleon suite, which is on the first floor facing the sea um, on the promenade. And it's, as, you know, very, the grand, although it began to fade a bit at that point, it's, a, you know, a big Victorian era kind of wedding cake of a, of a hotel. And the IRA had known she was going to be in the Napoleon suite, which is why when their designated bomber, Patrick McGee, had checked in three weeks earlier, posing as a guest, as an Englishman, using the name Roy Walsh, he requested a sea-facing room, which he got. And he was in room 629, which is five stories above where the suite where Thatcher was going to stay. And that is where he planted the bomb behind a, a, a panel in a bath with a timer. Uh, the very precision um, uh, timer, which was taken from a VCR recorder, if you remember what uh, what those were like back in the day. And it was timed to pulse down second by second to 2.54 a.m. on the 12th of October, which is three weeks after uh, Patrick McGee had checked out. And the bomb did its its work because it wasn't discovered. Um, the police did, did not do thorough checks of the whole hotel at all. It was in some ways a complete failure of imagination on the part of the police because no one had tried to blow up the British government or, or take out the, you know, the British crown since Guy Fawkes, since the gunpowder plot of 1605. And so although the IRA had, you know, the, the security forces knew the IRA had the technology, they had the bombers, but I'm not sure if the police necessarily knew that the IRA had the ambition uh, to, to, to do, to attempt such an audacious attack. And so that was that failure of imagination left a gap in which the IRA were able to basically to plant the bomb and come so close to taking out the government. You describe as well how the bomb, the placement of it effectively turned the building into a bomb. That was the 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 devilishness of the of the bomb, which was the bomb itself obliterated the room six two nine and the rooms immediately adjacent to it. But really the, the, the force of the bomb was largely upward and it, it shattered the, the, the roof of the hotel, which, which was two floors further up on the eighth floor. And there it toppled a Victorian chimney stack that weighed five tons, 
which is, when you think about it, it's an extremely heavy, heavy chunk of masonry. That then toppled and fell down back into the heart of the hotel and it started wiping out one room after another, falling down sort of like a, a homicidal guillotine, just slicing through everything, you know, concrete, wood, and also human beings as well. And, you know, what was ever in the path of this avalanche, you know, was, was either going to be grievously injured or killed. And at the outset, it looked like it could have, as if this rubble would have cascaded directly into Margaret Thatcher's suite, but it didn't. It took a slight swerve. And so instead of taking out all of the rooms ending in nine, which included would have included Margaret Thatcher's suite, it took out the, the adjoining rooms ending in the number eight. And so this is really why Thatcher survived, just the sheer fluke of geometry. The bomb went off somewhere between quarter to three and three. I know that because I looked up when I'd finished something at quarter to three and I just turned to do one final paper and then um, it went off. My husband was in bed and all the windows went and the bathroom was extremely badly damaged. In your own room? Yes, we were very lucky. So quite literally could have gone in one direction or another as the masonry came tumbling down. There were, however, several victims who were killed on the, on that night. Yes, five people in total died from it, which is a remarkably low number when you think about it. I mean, there were more than 220 people inside that hotel sleeping. And, I mean, it could have had the... Again, the rubber gone a different way. It, it could have killed more people, but it was five people, um, three women, two men, all from uh, five different couples. Um, some of them some were killed straight away by the sheer force of the bomb. Others had a much more grueling uh, death when they suffocated in the rubble. And the five victims who, who died, they were all, in effect, there for the Tory party conference. They were all in some way connected to the conference itself. Yes, and they were all Conservative Party members um, and therefore under the IRA um, kind of terminology at that time, legitimate targets because they would have been part of the British imperial war machine. That was the type of vocabulary used by, by, by on Fablacht and, um, and Sinn Féin. While it takes place in October 84, the planning had gone on for quite some time into this attack. Yes, this to me was one of the most extraordinary aspects of it was just how much, how patient they were. Um, because a lot of IRA operations, you know, at that time, I mean, the IRA is always under pressure, uh, under stress about to do operations when they, you know, each week would bring a different crisis. Um, if if you're in the provisional IRA, and so it was difficult to have, in a sense, a kind of a strategic focus or to or to think long term when all the time you feel you have the police or the army kind of breathing down your neck. But in this case, but they did it. I mean, they and and it was done by the IRA's so-called England Department. This was a unit based in Dublin, just a handful of of men really who were tasked with exporting the war across the Irish Sea. And they decided, I mean, that they would, you know, to go after Thatcher, you had to obviously try and do it carefully. And they, they thought there's two places you could really get her where you'd know in advance where she was going to be. Um, one was on election night she, in her constituency 
um, there would be at the voting centre there. She would be there briefly at some point. And the other time would be at the Conservative Party conference, which every year would alternate between Brighton or Blackpool. And that made much more sense to go for a Conservative Party conference. And so they, over successive years, they sent scouts to surveil the conference. Um, scouts were looking at what were the security protocols? What are the police doing? Which hotels are people staying in? What suites are they in? How does it, you know, how, how are we going to do this? And so they were basically doing their homework. And they also, um, at this point, once they selected the Grand Hotel as the target, they were customizing bombs, trying to see, well, what type of bomb, what, what power can it be? What size does it need to be? Where are we going to hide it? They also sent over a construction engineer to study the architecture of the hotel. And that's why it seems that they knew or they hoped that the, the, the chimney might fall. Um, and so they did their homework. You know, they really did their, their due diligence. And also in choosing Patrick McGee, I mean, one big advantage of him, and he was the last link in the chain, was that he had lived in England for a while in his youth. And he could put on an English accent and he felt comfortable. I mean, he, he you know, because he kind of knew the English and he was not like, say, other, uh, another IRA man from, say, East Tyrone or West Belfast who'd never been out of his own kind of immediate area and might feel like a fish out of water. Whereas McGee could, you know, convincingly turn it on as an Englishman who's checking into the hotel, you know, not raising any suspicions. Um, and, you know, so it worked. Um, so in a sense, in a sense, all the, the, the kind of stars aligned for, for this attack. What happened in the the morning after the, the the attack? Once once Thatcher had survived, what was her response to it? It was remarkable, really. I mean, once they the fire um, sir, emergency services and her bodyguards got her out of the hotel, which is a chaotic scene. I mean, it you know the place was a bomb site. The promenade is filled with these kind of stumbling uh, survivors, coated in dust and blood. Um, there's sirens wailing. No one, people are worried if there's still or maybe are there IRA snipers outside. No one's quite sure. Some people thought there'd been an attack from the sea. Um, so it's chaos. And she is kind of hustled out of there to a nearby police station. And there, the, the, the police and her officials are trying to figure out, okay, well, how are we going to get her back to Downing Street, you know, as fast as possible? And she turns to them and says, no, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not leaving. Um, I mean, and the conference is, by the way, is going ahead as usual. We're anxiously awaiting news of other people. Um, you hear about these atrocities, these bombs. You don't expect them to happen to you. But life must go on as usual. And your conference will go on. The conference will go on. The conference, all right, all right, John. The conference will go on as usual. Thank you, Prime And they looked at her in astonishment and they were horrified. I mean, I spoke to them. I mean, they're still around and they said they, they couldn't believe it. They thought, I mean, the promenade is it's it's a war zone. We, there's still kind of people in the rubble. And there is the prime minister saying the conference. And this was about like four o'clock in the morning. And she's saying the conference will go ahead. And and she insisted. And it did. At 9.30 a.m. on the dot, the, the conference went ahead in the convention center, which is right beside the Grand Hotel. And so you had this kind of shell-shocked audience. And they had also, by the way, a lot of them you know, had been kind of bundled out of their beds in their pajamas. 
So they had to open a Marks and Spencers nearby and shuttle these Tory party members in their pyjamas to Marks and Spencers to get clothes. So then they could actually then turn up into the convention centre and not be in their pyjamas. And then with Thatcher comes in, the police said, look, OK, if you're going to go ahead with the conference, at least, please, can you can we shuttle you in the back door just in case there's high-rate snipers or whatever? And what does she do? She rises and insists on going through the front door and strides in again, almost as if nothing has happened. It's a bravura display of defiance, if you like. Now, of course, had she been, you know, had there been a follow-up attack, then we would, you know, then would say, well, it was reckless and stupid. But there wasn't a follow-up attack and she got away with it. Plus, she did give a very like a barnstorming speech, um, keynote speech that afternoon, which really rallied the party faithful. And even those in Britain and elsewhere who hated Thatcher for her policies had to admit that her performance was creditable and even inspirational, one could say, because, you know, the, this is just hours after an attempt to assassinate her. Some of her friends have been uh, killed. And yet there she is on the stage, you know, telling the IRA, not only did you fail to kill me, but you even failed to to cancel our, our conference because here we are. And this is how democracy works. This is how my government works. This is how I work. And so it really was a bravura display of, uh, of, of, of the Iron Lady. What about the police investigation? What, what led them to McGee? The key thing was in the rubble, um, we had hundreds of de- detectives. I mean, this triggered the biggest manhunt um, in one of the biggest manhunts the UK had ever seen. And so you had like ants, you had these kind of detectives crawling all over the, the rubble, extracting every single potential fragment of evidence. And crucially, they got the hotel registration cards, which were in the basement. And they started going through these registration cards thinking, well, you know, if the bomber had been a guest, you know, then he or she would have had to check in. And qu- quickly, they're able to identify the likely room for where the bomb had been planted. And also they knew from IRA timers that, the, it, you know, the, the bomber would have been got probably there within could, up to three months earlier. And anyway, they'd eventually, they eventually, they found, um, it took them three months to identify a palm print on a registration card from room number 629 and that uh, and the name on it was Roy Walsh Um, and they thought okay that's this is um, likely to be our guy whoever Roy Roy Walsh is being a pseudonym is the bomber Um, and so they started um, checking that card against all of the cards of IRA suspects on file and eventually they did make a match and it took them about three months to, to do so because there was no computers in that way that could do it. It had to be all eyeball. And they eventually they made a, made a match with Patrick McGee, um, who was a veteran IRA bomber. But remarkably, the original palm print that they, they made the match with dated from 1967, when McGee had been 15 years old living in Norwich and he'd been involved with the wrong crowd. They'd, they'd broken into a, a butcher shop to steal stuff and he got caught and fingerprinted, and his palms, crucially, there were thorough coppers in Norwich, they also took his palm print. And it was that print from him, his teenage uh, days that was matched with the registration card from the rubble of the Grand Hotel. What was the significance of the pseudonym Roy Walsh? And, and could that have 
ultimately scupper the entire plan. I asked Patrick McGee this when I was interviewing him for a Guardian article um, about his own memoir um, a few years ago. I said, yeah, the, you know, the pseudonym, I mean, what's, what, what about that? And he, he, he got a bit, I don't say defensive, but he said, look, there's nothing in it. You know, it's just, I just picked it at random. It's, you know, there's no significance to it. Um, and it's almost like a last minute thing, he said. I don't buy that because, firstly, there was no last minute thing about this operation. I mean, you know, years in the planning, you know, you and you don't kind of, and especially he would have had prepared the, the signature for Roy Walsh, you know, the, the sort of details you think about them in advance. Now, as it turns out, there was a real Roy Walsh just like Patrick McGee, he was from West Belfast. He was uh, had been a member of the IRA's England department. He'd been sent over to England to bomb, in, this, in his case, London, in 1973, more than a decade before the Brighton bombing, and he got caught. And he'd been in prison ever since. Not only in prison, but the real Roy Walsh had been waging like a one-man campaign against the English penal system. I mean, he really was an inveterate rebel. I mean, he's always trying to escape, uh, he was triggering protests. He was often getting into kind of fights with the authorities. And then he was punished by being sent into isolation wards and so forth. And so he became a bit of a, within the IRA circles, a very kind of almost a legend. And so it seems to me and to other and to IRA people I've spoken to that McGee's chose that name, Roy Walsh, as a, as a pseudonym, probably as an homage to the real Roy Walsh, you know, who was stuck in prison. To like it was, it was uh, you know, because it was you know, as if the torch was being passed, you know, from one of member of the England department to another, and and this in a sense because lineage for the IRA and continuity and linking with, you know, previous generations of Irish rebels is very important, and that's why Roy Walsh himself, the real Roy Walsh in 1973, he had used the pseudonym of another real bomber, Thomas Clark who was a Fenian bomber and who also was one of the, the, those who planned the 1916 rising. And so, you know, there's this like strange kind of like, you know, almost like passing the baton, you know, from one uh, bomber in England to another. And so I think that was why Mickey did it. It's, sort of, it's like, it seems like an in, in, in joke. And also, you know, arguably giving it two fingers to, to the police whom he knew would come looking for him. What about the impact of this bombing on what became known as the peace process. Do you think it was a, a significant moment and would it have altered the course of history, obviously, if it had succeeded? If it had succeeded, we'd be living in a different world um, because I mean, not only would Margaret Thatcher have died, but possibly Thatcherism, as we know it, um, would have died with her. Um, also, the Cold War may have taken a different a different course because she had went on to play a crucial bridging role between Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan. So the what if, the counterfactual is absolutely fascinating because I mean she really was, you know, a global leader at that time. And so yeah, who knows what and who would have succeeded her. And also the like could well have been a ferocious British security response in in Northern Ireland, you know, had she been assassinated. But Thatcher herself she went on to sign the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985, which in turn paved the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. And of the many ironies here, I mean, the Good Friday Agreement then led to the the release, the early release of Patrick McGee, the man who came so close to killing her. 
Um, and so, you know, there's all of these threads and unexpected consequences um, unspooled from, you know, from the from the bomb that it's 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 a, a fascinating way to kind of thread them together and see, you know, how things turned out. It sparked the phrase that the IRA used in its statement at the time, we only have to be lucky once, you have to be lucky always. Do you do you actually think, looking back now, actually Thatcher was lucky on this occasion? Yes, absolutely. I mean, because firstly, because she escaped with her life, she escaped uns, unscathed, and she um, took to having a, a, a torch in her handbag after that because she was, despite the public display of of defiance and, and and not being intimidated. I mean, she was like any human being w- was affected by it. Um, she also w- feared then to to have whenever she was sleeping that the, the the bedroom door would be left open, you know, in case she needed to make an a ma- needed to make an a quick exit. And I think she was um, lucky because, and in a more political sense, I mean, it's uh, this gilded the you know the legend of the Iron Lady. I mean, because it's the, the bomb and that stripped away politics and personality to its essence. I mean, she, you know, she reacted, you know, using pure instinct uh, in those hours. And so in a sense, we saw a real side of, of Margaret Thatcher. And that, yeah, that, I mean, the the Iron Lady legend um, in, in many ways was, was really born in, um, that day. My thanks to Rory Carroll, Ireland correspondent at The Guardian and author of the new book Killing Thatcher, The IRA, The Manhunt and The Long War on the Crown. I'm Fiona Sheen and today's episode was produced by Tabitha Monaghan, researched by Anna Viglarczyk, with sound by Niall McMonigle. Archive clips from BBC, RTE, CBS and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.